I'm both um, honored and humbled uh, and a bit mystified by the invitation to come to speak to you. Uh, there are much better models on this subject than I am or that our church is, but we're glad to be here. And notwithstanding the measure of intimidation because of the setting and because of the subject, the invitation does give me an opportunity to do something that I have wanted to do. Not only to see you and to be among you, but uh, particularly to express our deepest, sincerest gratitude for your very generous contributions in support of the literature ministry in the Far East. Uh, you have given some $43,000 to facilitate uh, that aspect of our labor. Uh, that has been of immense practical help. It has been a profound encouragement. This is just one example, a very small example, a child's book, which your donations have helped to uh, translate and print. There are much more substantial works. Uh, Dr. Malone's work on baptism is in the pipeline. I'm sorry I can't give you a time frame as to when that will actually be available, but thank you in behalf of the pastors and the members of our church family in Mebane. Thank you. My present assignment is to give a report to you on our church's journey in the work of evangelism. Perhaps you will appreciate that that is something of an embarrassment. It's somewhat like being asked to give a report of your prayer life. <laughs> on one hand, you're glad that you have a prayer life. On the other hand, you wish that it were much better than it is. And you're not particularly happy to tell everyone about um, how poor it is. Well, we are very thankful that some efforts have been made toward local evangelism. However, we are embarrassed that we have done more, that our efforts have not been greater, more energetic, more imaginative. And we are particularly sad that we are not able to report that we have tremendous results to show for the efforts that we have made. We'd very much like to be able to testify of a massive harvest of lives for Christ. We're still waiting for the harvest, still praying, still believing, and still expecting. But the harvest, by and large, has not yet come. All that being said, recognizing that both the will and the effort toward any good work is the product of the labor of Jesus Christ in us by His Spirit, I am certainly willing to testify of what the Lord Jesus has enabled us to attempt, to attempt for His glory and for the salvation of people. Now, you will please understand that what I will be speaking about reflects the labor of the church, not the labor of the pastors, but the labor of of the church. I've organized my remarks under three headings. First, the biblical impetus for our efforts. As a preacher, I have a um, hopefully unbreakable habit of feeling the need to root everything I say in the Bible. So even though I'm giving a report, I want to show the biblical roots of what we have endeavored to do, and then an overview of the efforts themselves, and finally, if time permits, some practical lessons from these endeavors. First of all, the biblical impetus for our efforts. In a broad theological sense, we all continue to live under the creation mandate, 
to exercise dominion in the earth, to subdue it, and to exercise dominion for the pleasure of God. Under the new covenant, the major thrust of that exercise is to capture the nations for Christ by means of the gospel. The Lord Jesus himself gave us that mandate, which Pastor Blackburn exegeted on Tuesday evening, familiar to us as the Great Commission. The resurrected Christ said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Going, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Now, Christ there, in speaking about his authority, was not reflecting that authority that is his by reason of his deity, that has always been and always will be his. He was speaking of an authority that was the reward of his mediatorial obedience. By reason of his obedience in the world, as the God-man, in particular, by reason of the triumphs of his cross and his resurrection. This man had been lifted from dry ground to the throne of the universe. Such were his triumphs that as the God-man, all authority had been given to him, and now he sends his disciples forth into the world with that authority. And he not only sends them, he sends the church that would be built upon them. He sends them to go to all nations, making disciples unto him, and then incorporating those disciples into his kingdom, which is visibly expressed in and by the church. Now, of course, we must ever be clear that making disciples happens only through the communication of the gospel, only by the preaching and testifying of the gospel are disciples made. In the book of Acts, very shortly, Christ demonstrated his authority, his power, and his willingness to conquer considerable portions of humanity very quickly by means of the gospel. Large portions of pagan cities were taken captive for Christ. The world was turned upside down very quickly by the power and authority of Christ resting upon his church. Now, our Lord has not lost any of his strength, any of his authority. He is still able, he is still willing to do that, to conquer large portions of humanity Quickly, frankly, we are surprised, amazed at how quickly the kingdom is progressing in the Far East just with regard to that small stewardship that we have. Churches are being built, ministers are being trained, many churches are com coming under the influence of Reformed theology, and it is happening quickly. Now, Christ has his own sovereign timetable for what he purposes to accomplish wherever he sends the gospel and wherever he plants his church. The timetable is his, it is not ours. It is my conviction that wherever Christ plants his church, he has many people in that part of the earth that he intends to gather to himself. But that is his work. Nevertheless, this must be, my dear beloved, this must be a controlling element in our self-consciousness as churches. We are called to be outward. 
not simply focused upon ourselves and our order and our doctrine and our internal piety. We are called to go. We are called to be outward. We are called to extend the kingdom of Christ by means of the gospel, commencing where we are and working outward with the whole world as our target. I think we and Mabin kind of got that backward. We were much more aggressive in world missions than we were for a long time in local missions. That is to our shame. And now God's beginning to make the adjustment for which we're thankful. I want to give you a, a warning. A warning that I've learned by pastoral experience. Bad things happen to churches and bad things happen to Christians. When for whatever reason we cease being Christian imperialist in our praying and in our vision and in our going. When we become inward, we begin to decay and fall apart. We have been given great weapons not to shoot at ourselves but to fire at the gates of hell. We need to be at it. But of course that raises a very substantial question. How do we carry out this kingdom-building labor in a society that is increasingly drugged by materialism, secularism, and hedonism? How do we overcome an escalating hostility to Christianity in our nation, coupled with an openness to almost anything and everything non-Christian? It's a difficult day. It's unlike any other day of my life and experience as a Christian or as a pastor. Are we to suppose that the opposition we are now facing is greater than the opposition encountered by the fledgling church of the first century. No, I think not. But we do need help. We need help in learning how to operate out of a distinct position of weakness as opposed to a position of assumed strength. My earliest memories of evangelistic effort occurred in my early teens when young people from my home church would gather up hands full of tracts and go to downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina to distribute them. For a very shy young man, that was a challenge to walk up to people you had never seen here. Would you please read this? But by and large, we met with respect. Even in the turbulent 60s, People would often smile, perhaps condescendingly, but they would smile and they would accept the track and go on their way. In the earliest years of my pastoral ministry, we assumed that we, when we invited neighbors and friends to church services, that would not be viewed as offensive. And if we persisted, we might actually get them to come to one. In those days when unbelievers fell upon hard times, in their families, in their personal lives, in their financial lives, they would often come to church seeking help. We operated from a position of strength. I can't believe some of the places I preached as a young man. Once at R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, I was asked to preach in their cafeteria. And people gathered around and they listened. Early in my pastoral ministry, I remember being asked to preach at a public high school assembly. And there were 1,500 to 2,000 kids there. And I was given freedom to just preach the gospel. We operated from a position of strength. Christianity was widely respected as true religion. It was assumed, if you were going to be religious, 
And many people didn't want to be, but it was assumed that if you were going to be religious, you would be a Christian. We might reasonably expect at least a polite hearing for the gospel. That has substantially changed. In some areas, the change has been radical. At least what we have discovered is one of our largest challenges now is simply gaining a hearing for the gospel. Gaining a hearing. We are operating from a position of distinct weakness in terms of pop culture. The popular perception and preconceived notions of who we are and what we are about are increasingly not just prejudiced, but hostile against us. It's a different day. We cannot assume that the unconverted will come to us. And my dear brothers, if we make the major, perhaps even the total thrust of our evangelistic labors to be what happens on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, it will be very much tantamount to bass fishing in our bathtubs. The fish simply are not there. So what do we do? How do you do evangelism today? The answer, I believe, is that we need very much to return to the beginning. We need to sit humbly at the feet of Christ and at the feet of his apostles. Part of our Lord's earliest call to those men who would become pillars for his church was this. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, there was in that statement a promise of an effectual work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit given by Christ would take those weak, unlearned, common laborers, and make them mighty preachers of the gospel. But there was another dimension of promise in that statement. Christ was saying, in effect, guys, I want you to watch me. I want you to follow me. I want you to study the way that I interact with people. And if you will pay attention, you will learn from me how to gain an audience from people who are either ambivalent or even hostile to what you have to say. Amen. And what did Christ teach those men and what would he teach us if we would pay attention by his example? I believe he taught this. People are one to a hearing of the gospel. Listen to my words very carefully. People are one to a hearing of the gospel by love. By loving efforts to meet them in their felt needs. Christ had massive audiences. But how many people came because they wanted to hear a sermon? They came because they were sick. They came because they were curious. They came because they were hungry. They came because they were confused. They came because he was loving toward them. People are one to a hearing of the gospel by loving efforts to meet them in their felt needs. When the hungry are fed... And the naked are clothed, and the mourning are comforted, and the oppressed are relieved, when the fearful are giving hope, the disoriented given direction, when the lonely are befriended, when hurting people are loved. They are much more inclined to allow us to speak to them about their need for a relationship to the God whose love we have just manifested to them. This is so elementary, but it seems so intimidating to us. 
The first step toward winning the perishing is loving them. And loving them, not in secret, but loving them in ways that they can recognize. They can feel. I hope no one is thinking that this is a mantra of a weak man-centered theology. My dear friends, this is the heart of genuine Christianity. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, please. 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. As the context demonstrates, we are by grace God's special people. We are to glorify God by abstaining from sin and by performing good works. Not just righteous works, but morally beautiful works. Works that benefit people even if they are never converted. Even if they are never converted. Works that will cause them to testify on the day of judgment that they have seen and felt the goodness of God. You see, I believe that the people in Mebane who die in their sins and stand before God in the last day ought to be able to say, it's all my fault because I saw and felt your love. Through the ministry of that church, they loved me. They represented your goodness to me. It's my fault that I didn't pay attention. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. All men. I think what I'm about to say is a very important principle, I think. We must not view loving people as an evangelistic technique. We must love people because that glorifies God. That's who God is. And we are called to imitate Him by walking in love. Whatever else people know about us, they ought to know that we are genuinely loving people. And by loving them, we may gain a hearing for the gospel, whereby we can bring them the highest and greatest of goods. One other elementary principle of evangelism with which we are trying to grapple, to be learned from Christ and his apostles, is this. Now, this is subject to be misinterpreted, but we're going to go there nonetheless. We must be responsive to the culture in which God has set us. Responsive. Notice the language. Not indulging cultural sins. Not accommodating the doctrine of the gospel to cultural prejudices but nonetheless sensitive and responsive to the culture in which we find ourselves. The relevant passage is 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Paul says, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. He didn't say, I accommodate the gospel, I accommodate the worship of God. He says, I accommodate me. I accommodate myself. I think we need to do a lot of labor in 1 Corinthians 9. I think we need to do a lot more than what we've done. Now is not the time. 
I'll simply give you an illustration of how this might work. As you probably know, we live in a culture, at least in America, that has come to be absolutely fascinated with coffee. It's amazing. Coffee and coffee shops. People love to go to these quaint little shops, spend absurd amounts of money for a coffee that I can't even pronounce, sit around and read, surf the net on their laptops, or have private conversations. People spend unbelievable amounts of time and money doing that. Well, I have heard of a Christian couple that have purchased and run a coffee shop with a view to engaging people with the gospel. They serve good coffee, I assume. It'd be kind of dumb to serve bad coffee and expect people to come. I assume they serve good coffee. They provide attractive Christian reading materials. They themselves, in, themselves engage their customers in warm, friendly conversations. And they sponsor periodic Bible studies in the back of their shop for any customers who may be curious and wish to attend. People are being converted. People who have walked in who don't have a clue never go to church. One, by the friendly atmosphere, the good coffee, engaged in conversation, fascinated, attend these little Bible studies. And I heard of a woman like that who's now a member of a Reformed Baptist church. Well, these are some of the leading principles that have supplied the impetus for what we've endeavored to do. Now, an overview of the efforts that we have made, and this gets boring and this gets embarrassing, but it's my task. I want to talk, first of all, about some one-time or occasional efforts that we have made over the centuries. Well, it just seems like centuries. First, door-to-door visitation. At one time, one of our pastors, Pastor Charles Fortner, was fully supported by the church to go door-to-door making Christian literature available, some of it free, some of it very cheaply. He was a modern-day Cole Porter. Over years, a very high percentage of the homes in our county, not just Mebane, our county, were visited by Pastor Fortner. More recently, several men in our church, teams of men, conducted door-to-door visits on Sunday afternoon to introduce our church and to give free materials and to extend personal invitations to attend our services. Now, what we are learning is in this present culture, door-to-door visits are perhaps now more offensive than helpful. It's worth a try. Secondly, for 25 to 30 years, Our church sponsored a column in one of the local newspapers. It was a weekly article of 16 to 20 column inches written on various subjects, the main thrust always being evangelism. But over 25 or 30 years, you can cover a lot of subjects, and we did. Recently, we had a little pastor's meeting. We do that once a year. And I learned that a church in our county had asked if they could come, their pastors. And that puzzled me because I was not aware of any reformed influence in that congregation. I introduced myself to the men who came, and one of them came to me later and said, "Uh, Pastor, I, I simply want you to know that I came to the reformed faith largely through the instrumentality and influence of articles written by your church ten years ago. Now, we would never have known that. We wrote articles on homosexuality, which the paper said they would not print, but they finally conceded when we put some pressure on them. A lot of articles, a lot of subjects. article was written on the nobility of the coaching profession. 
the opportunity that good coaches have to influence young men, particularly those who do not have strong role, male role figures in their lives. I learned later that one of the high school coaches in the public school cut that article out, put it in his desk, and periodically takes it out and reads it. Now, that's a costly effort, but it's well worth the effort. Thirdly, for several years, our church sponsored and manned a booth at a local spring festival in the town of Mebbin. We gave away literature. We endeavored to engage folk in conversation. One spring, we rented a downtown store, showed free films on creation and the influence of biblical religion upon the history of America. On one occasion, we had a block party. Now, mind you, I'm trying to be honest in the things we've done. Some of these things we'll never do again. <laughs> this is probably one. <laughs> but we sponsored a block party. We sent out invitations. We have a lot of communities around our church. And on a Saturday afternoon, we invited all the neighbors to come. And we had games for kids of various ages, and we had free food, and we had free literature, and in the evening we brought in some highly skilled Christian musicians to give a free concert. The effort was simply to break down walls and to introduce ourselves to our neighbors. Fifthly, our own people, we have many, I'm sure you do as well, who are gifted musicians. Periodically, our people have concerts for our own edification and enjoyment on Friday evenings. But there have been a few concerts in which we have made a broader appeal in the community. And one of the most popular was a patriotic concert honoring veterans. And we invited veterans, and the VFW was highly represented. They presented colors. And we sang patriotic uh, songs, and we sang hymns, and we had testimonies, and we preached the gospel. And there were many veterans there, dressed in their uniforms. The mayor came, city officials came. On a later occasion, at the first anniversary of 9-11, some of the mainline denominational churches in Mebane decided it would be good to have a community-wide memorial service. I think it was engendered by a man in the First Baptist Church. And pastors from all the mainline churches were there on the docket. The high school band was there. The high school chorus was there. Uh, we used the largest gathering place in Mebane. I was really surprised. Still today, it's surprising. They asked a pastor from the Reformed Baptist Church to preach. They'll probably never do that again. <laughs> but they did that. And that invitation was reflective, I'm convinced, of the interest that we had shown in the community as a whole. They saw that we were friends, that we were lovers of the community, and they gave us that high responsibility. Sixthly, we once sponsored a free one-day basketball camp for the youth of Mebane and surrounding communities, particularly targeting disadvantaged young people. We brought in, uh, I'm a big ACC fan, I guess you could guess that if you know the geography of where I'm from. What's more surprising, I'm a Wake Forest fan. There aren't many of us. One of my son's former coaches, who was a Wake Forest fan and actually went to work at the university, knowing that I was a fan, brought a book to me. He personally delivered a book that was written by a member of the Wake Forest basketball team. I was very interested, but I didn't have much time, so I set it aside. Then I began to flip through it, and there were quotes by Charles Spurgeon. I didn't really play basketball. <laughs> And John Newton and C.S. Lewis. And I said, you know, I think this is about more than basketball. And the man, the young man who wrote that, it didn't play much. He was a walk-on. It was life at the end of the bench. It was a book about perseverance. 
and how God enabled him to persevere through four years of hard work and discouragement. Well, I said, I've got to meet this guy. So I made connections with him. We struck up a friendship. I said, would you come and give a one-day clinic? He said, I'd love to. He came on Friday night. There was a meeting for parents and their kids. He told his life story and gave his testimony. We were able to gain the local public high school gym, which doesn't happen much. We were able to secure it for Saturday. We had a morning of clinics. We had 60 to 70 kids come from the community. We fed them pizza, and he gave them his testimony. Just an effort to get to kids who will not come to our church. One year, we offered, maybe two years, a $500 scholarship for the best essay on Pilgrim's Progress submitted by a graduating senior from the local public school. We thought it perhaps would be good if we could get a bunch of kids reading Pilgrim's Progress or reading other Christian classics. For some time, one of our pastors was heavenly invested in campus ministry at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He spent large portions of every week there. He held small group Bible studies for men and for women one-on-one meetings with students, Christian and non-Christian. And even to this day, he has contacts with young men in seminary uh, who he contacted and ministered to during that time. In conjunction with Campus Crusade for Christ, our church has sponsored three major lectures on the campus of UNC. We had a lecture on creation by Dr. Kurt Wise, formerly of Bryan College, a Harvard grad, a masterful mind on the doctrine of creation. We sponsored a lecture on the Da Vinci Code using a professor from RTS Charlotte who was also a graduate of UNC. Most recently, just within the last couple months, we sponsored a lecture on intelligent design by Dr. Andy McIntosh of the University of Leeds. Now, these lectures were attended by hundreds of university students, some of them friendly, many of them antagonistic. We once held a conference on creation, renting the largest facility in Mebbin, bringing together some of the leading scholars in Christian creation science. One of the focuses of that meeting Part of it was to strengthen the hands of young people and churches, but part of it was to invite, by letter, all the science teachers in all the public schools in our county to come and hear. Several young couples in our church have given themselves to the tedious labor of building relationships with people in a government a government-subsidized housing project not far from our church. Most of the residents are single moms with multiple children. It's been a costly labor. Women have taken their children into some very difficult situations to build relationships. They've been taken advantage of. Their kindness has been abused. But they have built bridges to some very needy people. One day, one of our ladies was there, and she was showing a young lady in the projects a picture of her family, husband, children. And the young girl looked at the man and said, Who's that? And she said, Well, that's my husband. And the young girl said, What's a husband? What's a husband? Hard labor, but I believe it's labor that reflects the heart of Christ. Last fall, we identified areas uh, in our community where we have concentrated groups of people living. And we asked people in each area to sponsor a home Bible study, four-week Bible study inviting their neighbors dealing with John chapter 3. We had ten home Bible studies last fall with many neighbors coming. The last 
one-time or occasional effort that I will mention. Now, I wasn't going to mention this, but some others insisted. For about 15 years, our church sponsored the Southeastern Reformed Baptist Family Conference in Dayton, Tennessee. Now, the motive for that was to give our churches opportunity to come together and fellowship. Your good preaching, strengthen our ties. But evangelism was also a purpose, particularly the conversion of our own young people. A pastor recently told me he would not be surprised if a hundred people weren't converted during those family conferences. And he told a strange story. He said a woman in his church was converted during one of the prayers. The closest thing I have ever come to revival in my own experience was at one of those conferences. Pastor Ted Donnelly preached a series on the doctrine of hell, and he preached the sermon, What is Hell Like? I've never quite experienced anything like that. And there were 12 to 15 young people converted that night. It's amazing. Now, in the things that I presented thus far, I, I, I hope there are two threads that you can distinguish. One, confrontation with truth. The other, compassion. Showing compassion so that we might confront with truth. Now, quickly, here are some ongoing things that we're doing. These are happening now. On a weekly basis, we do what many of you do. We send men to a local jail to preach. Uh, they meet with various groups of inmates. Uh, there's a man who goes and preaches in Spanish. Secondly, we're heavenly heavily engaged in a local extended care facility for the elderly. In fact, two of our pastors are the official chaplain of that facility. They make weekly visits. They talk to the residents, hold Bible studies, and when various people die, they hold memorial services for their families. In addition to that, one Sunday a month, men from our church go in the afternoon on the Lord's Day to hold worship services. Thirdly, and I'm not sure where this stands at present, but for a protracted period of time, uh, certain women in our congregation who are bilingual hold ESL classes in Hispanic neighborhoods, and whole Hispanic families come to learn English out of the English Bible and, and other Christian works. On a monthly basis, we have folk who assist in a ministry to foreign students at Duke University. This is about the easiest way to engage in world missions. You have students from all over the world who come to major universities, and they're very curious about the American way of life, including Christianity. They're curious. So why not take advantage of that curiosity to introduce them to truth? We endeavor to do that once a month. Once a month, and this has probably been our most su successful endeavor to date. Once a month for the last two years, women in our congregation sponsor what they call a mom's coffee connection. It's an invitation for all the mothers in our community to come together, to share common concerns, Child care is provided. Classes are held for the children. The mothers come. Lectures are given on matters of common interest. And then they break into small groups and discuss the subject of the lectures. And they have refreshments and fellowship. It's an effort to build bridges with women who are concerned about being mothers. Maybe they're not Christians. Many of them aren't. But they are concerned about being good mothers. About 30 women a month come, on average 12 to 15 who are not part of our church. And the most amazing thing, every month somebody comes who's never been there before. It's incredible. Now that's a, an intense labor. Often there are 60 to 70 kids that have to be cared for in those meetings. On a quarterly basis, 
Folk in our church provide a very nice free breakfast for as many senior citizens as we can crowd into our facility. Most of them are not part of our church, but they love this meeting time. They come together, they're pampered, we go get them if they need transportation. Our young people escort them in, wait on them hand and foot. We give them good food. We give them good conversation. We give them music, and we give them the Word of God. Uh, just this past Saturday, we had 75 who came. My, my wife bumped into one of the little old ladies who comes in the grocery store, and she said, I, I want you to know... I count your church my home. And I thought, that's interesting. She's never been to a service. <laughs> but she loves those senior breakfasts. Now, church growth gurus would not say that's the way you build a church. You don't reach out to people who are about to die. <laughs> True religion and undefiled reaches to people on both ends of the spectrum. Orphans, you don't build a church out of them either. And widows, that's showing the love of Christ. As many of you, we hold an annual vacation Bible school. And the real thrust of our Bible school is to reach unchurched families, and particularly poor kids and disadvantaged kids. Well, we haven't done nearly enough. God helping us, we want to do much more. This fall, God willing, Bradford Academy will open. It's a classical Christian school run by parents under the general oversight of our elders. One of the most exciting things to me about that, it was a real burden I had, that if we were going to have the oversight of a school, it would be open to non-Christians. And part of the vision, if God will supply the funds, is that scholarships will be given to very poor kids from non-Christian families who are willing to abide by our rules of conduct, whose parents are willing to sign to allow their kids to be taught Christian doctrine. What have we learned from this? Besides, it's hard work. I'd like to give you five P's uh, that we have learned. It kind of summarizes what we have learned, what we are learning. I shouldn't speak in past tense. What we are learning. Number one, the necessity of piety. To be effective instruments in God's hands, we must be a genuinely pious people. We can't simply have a cause. We must be pious and by pious, I mean we must ourselves be earnest, enthusiastic, God-lovers. God-loving people. Don't put it on and take it off. That must be who we are. People who engage in doing His will because we love Him. Who delight in speaking about Him because we love Him. Not simply because we have a cause. Because we love Him who really want to see his kingdom progress and plead with him to that end. In my mind, the message you heard last night is the most important message you can possibly hear in evangelism. It is supernatural. Second P, preparation. If we're going to send our people out, they have to be grounded in gospel doctrine. It's a wild world out there. There's some wild ideas afloat. We don't send people out unprepared. They have to be prepared in some elementary principles of apologetics. They're going to get hit with all kinds of things. Anybody ever heard of, uh, of Dr. Sanders, who is a leading guru in the new perspectives of Paul? Well, his daughter lives across from our church. Now imagine trying to engage her and you don't know who she is. And her dad is a leading skeptic. 
And she has been indoctrinated to hate fundamentalists. Now, thankfully, the ones who have engaged her are very well equipped to do that. But there are people out there. They have their guns loaded. We have to protect God's people, not by clustering them off, but by teaching them and preparing them and sending them out. Third P, perseverance. Why should we do this at all? Sincere love for God produces jealousy that God be loved and worshipped by all mankind. And as long as there are people around us who do not love God, we have to be engaged. The primary motive in evangelization is not the good of men, it's the glory of God. It's gathering worshipers for God, persuading men as to the glory of God and their desperate need to be rightly connected to Him through Jesus Christ. We must ever be doing that as long as there are any people around us who don't love God. Fourthly, patience. We want fruit. We're agonizing over fruit. We yearn to see disciples made to the glory of God. And we believe that will happen because that's why He sent us. He sent us to make disciples. Disciples are going to be made. But as we said at the beginning, on His timetable. And we have to plant. Before we plant, we've got to gain access to the field. We have to gain access to the field. We have to plant and water and pray and then go back and plant, water and pray and keep doing it until the harvest comes. We need to be more aggressive. We must not be intimidated. The world is trying to intimidate us. How can they intimidate us? The world is ours. Our Savior is a King. Finally, participation. Ordinarily, outreach efforts fall upon a relatively few numbers of God's people in the church. And it kills them. I mean, I haven't talked about a lot. I've talked about a few things here. If the same people are trying to do all of that, how long will they last? Not very long. Our goal is to see every member of our church engaged in evangelism. One of the things that struck our eldership a few years ago, we were miserably failing in terms of Ephesians chapter 4, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We just were not doing that. And we were dying ourselves feeling that elders had to do it all. And we began to make changes. And we instituted a curriculum-based Sunday school in which we could uh, incorporate more and more men in teaching and learning how to teach. And that has made a world of difference. More and more of God's people have gained experience in communicating truth. And they're feeling bolder, better equipped to go and to talk to the unconverted. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for the patience and goodwill of allowing me to share our feeble attempts. As I said before, the day has changed. Um, it's not a day for retreat. It's a day for courage. David Wells has written a book, um, The Courage to Be a Protestant. We need to plead with God to give us fresh baptism of courage and fortitude 